All right. Well, good morning, everybody. If you don't know my name, I'm Pastor Cardi said, my name is Andrew. And uh, today we are going to be wrapping up our series called Squad. And if you haven't been with us, with us the last few weeks, I would encourage you at some point to go back and to listen to what Mike Lewis shared with us two weeks ago and what Pastor Corey shared with us last week. Because what we've been talking about in this series called Squad it's all about relationships. It's all about dealing with people. It's all about having those deep connections. And whether we like it or not, we're all going to be connected and dealing with people for the rest of our lives. All right. So this series is super duper important. And I hope that you've been getting some things out of it. I know it's been a blessing for me. It's been challenging and encouraging all at the same time, just hearing these very practical things and different things about hmm, who's in my squad, who's not in my squad. What should that look like? What could that look like? And uh, for the, our first week in the series, Mike Lewis shared with us about how we were designed for relationships. Now, maybe uh, this past year with COVID, um, maybe you've gone one of two ways. Maybe you've really felt that need for, man, I just need to be with people. I'm so stir crazy just being in my house. Or maybe you've gone the other side and said, man, this is kind of nice that I'm not around people anymore. And you've just enjoyed that solitude. But either way, whichever way you tend to go, we all need people in our life. We've been designed by God to need other people and for us to be in the lives of other people. We talked about how our squad, it picks us up, it encourages us, it challenges us, it's there for us. Last week, Pastor Corey talked about how sometimes, though, our squad, depending on who's in it, our squad could ruin us. Because the people we gather around, the people we allow to deeply influence us in our squad, could bring some ruin into our life. And he talked about how, hey, show me your friends and I'll show you your future, that whole idea. And he also talked about how our squad is different from our mission field, okay? We're all going to have people in our life that are acquaintances. We're going to have people in our life that we should be uh, telling them about Jesus and helping to show them uh, what it means to follow Jesus. That's our mission field. But our squad we've been talking about is that deep, connected, close-knit relationships that we have with people. People who they see us and we see them. We know them. They know us. And we just have their back. They have our back. It's those deep, connected relationships in life. And squads, squads are an amazing gift from God that can help us live for God. And to just kind of sum things up, being part of a good squad can just help make life better. All right? It's just simple as that. Being part of a good squad can just help make life better. But I want to start off today. I just want to dream a little bit, all right? All right, let's do that. What would, what would the best squad that you could possibly imagine look like? Just think about that. What would it look like? Who would be in it? What would the dynamics of the squad be? Would it be a fun group? Would it be a group that is all working towards a common goal? Would there be vulnerability and the ability to call out and to challenge? What would that squad look like? This week as I was thinking about it, I was trying to think through different squads that I see in culture or in like the media. Uh, the first one that came to mind was Scooby-Doo and Shaggy and the whole team there. That's a great squad where they have each other's back. They have a common mission. They're trying to figure out what's going on in this, these different situations. They all bring different strengths and weaknesses to the team, but, but that's a pretty famous squad. The other, another squad I thought of, and this would be a squad that would be so amazing to be a part of for me. And if you're like me and if you're nerdy like me, then you will appreciate this squad. But the Fellowship of the Ring, I mean, that would be the coolest squad 
ever. Like to be in a squad with like an elf and a dwarf and hobbits and a wizard. I mean, half of you are judging me right now for that. But that would be so cool because they're all working together. They're all super different. Some of them have to overcome different obstacles to, to work together, but they work together to save the world. I mean, that, that would be super awesome. Another squad I thought of, um, talking with Pastor Corey about different squads, and one he, um, actually he mentioned it to me, was the 1980 uh, Olympic team that beat, the American USA Olympic team that beat the Russians, all right? Uh, has anyone seen Miracle on Ice? All right, a couple of you. I actually have not, but I know the story. I've been to Lake Placid, so I guess it's okay that I haven't seen the movie because I've been there. But it is such an amazing story. If you don't know, it's this, this team of young guys who came together. They, had to, they really had to know each other and work together in order to beat the, the Russians in the U.S. Olympics. It was huge. It made headlines everywhere. That would be an awesome squad to be able to say, hey, I was a part of that team. But whatever your squad is, I bet none of us, if we're dreaming a little bit, none of us are dreaming about a bad squad. All right. None of us are sitting here thinking, man, I would love to be a part of a squad that just brings me down all the time. It'd be so great to have a squad that just stabs me in the back. Like, that'd be awesome. Like, none of us are thinking that. Now, maybe, maybe you've experienced that. Maybe that's your reality. But none of us would say, hey, that would be the ideal squad. We would all want to be part of a squad that we could say, this is good. In fact, let's go beyond ordinary. I think we would all want to be part of an extraordinary squad, an exceptional squad. Wouldn't that be awesome? Now, I've heard that it's uh, said that in order to, to reach uh, being exceptional at something or to be an expert at something, you have to do something or practice something for 10,000 hours. All right, you have to, has, has anyone else ever heard that statistic? That if you devote 10,000 hours to something, you're going to become an expert. You're going to move from good to great to exceptional at whatever, at whatever that is. And I've heard that statistic thrown out uh, or that fact different times. I have no idea if it's true or not. But what it does tell me is that if we want to be exceptional, if we want the exceptional, we're going to have to put the time in. There's going to be energy involved. There's going to be sacrifice. We're going to have to do the work. And I don't know if you know anyone who you would say is an expert or if you've heard anyone who's an expert talk or professional or someone who's just at the top of their game. There's just something a little bit different about the way those people tend to live and operate. They just tend to, people that I think about, man, they are just exceptional at what they do. They just tend to have a, a deeper drive in whatever they're doing, whether it's a sport or whether it's music or whatever. I would say, wow, they're exceptional. They just, they just seem to have something different going on. They tend to get up earlier or go to bed later, or they just have this deep drive, committed, just work ethic where they are just pouring in the time and effort because they want to be exceptional. They want to be an expert and they want to stay there. And they've realized they have to put in the work. In middle school, I, I wrestled. And when I was wrestling, my wrestling coach told uh, the team a story. And he told us a story about a famous wrestler. And I was trying to remember who it was. It may be Carl Sanderson, if anyone knows who he is. He is the wrestling coach for Penn State. And Carl Sanderson is an exceptional wrestler. When he was in college wrestling, he went 159 to zero in his collegiate career. He had 159 wrestling wins and zero 
losses, a perfect record. He was exceptional. But my, my wrestling coach was telling us a story about this wrestler who just won the championship. It may have been Carl Sanderson. I don't quite remember. But either way, he had just won this championship. And what usually happens when someone wins a championship? They usually take a break. You know, they've reached the end of the season. They've accomplished their goal. They've made it to where they were striving for. And what do they do? They take a break. They rest because they've just put in all this time and effort. Or I think about uh, when like, someone goes to, uh, wins the Super Bowl, and there's that famous like, stereotype, like, hey, what are you going to do next? I'm going to Disney World. You know, that whole mindset of, I won, I reached the top, now I can relax. Well, my wrestling coach was telling us this story about this wrestler who just won the national championship. And he, he won, he had reached his goal, and the very next morning, he got up early and he went for a run. And someone asked him about it and he said, yeah, I know I just won yesterday, but I got another championship to work towards next year. This guy was exceptional at what he did because he put in the work. He sought after the prize and he said, you know what? I just have to, I just have to make the sacrifices if I want to reach this goal. And I think... Uh, uh, I'm going to put a statement up on the screen. And this, this I know is true for me. It may not be true for you. It's this. We want extraordinary results, but we want to keep ordinary routines. We want extraordinary results, but we want to keep ordinary routines. You know, this, this wrestler guy, he, he had extraordinary results because he didn't have the ordinary routines. And I know for myself, oftentimes I get an idea or a goal and I say, I want to get here but in order to get here, I have to change the way I do things. And I, when push comes to shove, I just say, you know what? I'm just going to stay here because this is more comfortable. I know what I, I, I know the limits here. I know what I can do. This seems hard. And so I have the desire. I have the goal. But my actions say otherwise. My actions say, you know what? I really like it here. This is a great ideal, but I'm not going to work to get there. And so I think this is true when it comes to anything, when it comes to sports or music or whatever we want to be exceptional at. But I also think it applies to our relationships, especially the kinds of relationships we're talking about in this series squad. Because if we want deep relationships, if we want to have that kind of squad where I got your back, you got my back, if we want that kind of vulnerable, intimate type relationship with other people, there's going to be some work involved. There's going to be some sacrifice. We're going to have to break out of our ordinary routines. And we're going to have to try some things new. And uh, what does that look like? You know, what does that look like? What does that look like to, to start some new extraordinary routines to try to get to that exceptional squad? You know, is it, do we just need to start finding people who share common interests as us? Do we need to just spend more time with people in general? Do we need to say no to these relationships so that we can pour into these relationships? I think all of those are are good things that may come into play. But I think there's some deeper things that we have to think about in order to really start to reach those deep, exceptional relationships. And Jesus shared some things with his disciples that I think uh, apply to us as well, that if we took these things to heart it would really start to deepen our relationships with other people. 
All right. So I want to look at, it's in John 15. It's two verses, John 15, 12 to 13. And it says this, it says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus said these words to his disciples the night before he died. All right. So Jesus and his disciples were sharing their last meal together. You can read about that um, in the chapters before how they're, they're having this final meal together. And the next day, Jesus was going to be crucified. And during this, this time when he's talking to his disciples, he tells them this, love each other as I have loved you. All right, Jesus hasn't died for them yet. So what is he saying? He's saying, hey, Peter, hey, John, hey, Thomas, you need to love each other as I have loved you. Well, just before he says these words, Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. Jesus has just served his disciples. Think about that. God himself humbled himself to become a man, and then he humbled himself to be the kind of man that walked around and cared for people, and he humbled himself even more to wash people's feet. And I would say that's a way that he loved them. And so we can say, hey, love each other the way I've loved you because I humbly loved you by serving you. Just imagine all the stories that the disciples could have had when Jesus said, hey, John, love Peter the way I loved you. John had just been with, and all the disciples had just been with Jesus for years at this point. Think of all of the stories that could have come to their minds. All the ways they saw Jesus as he walked around and just interacted with people. People like the Samaritan woman at the well. And if you know the story, it's a story of two people who are at completely different ends of the societal spectrum. Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And I'd encourage you to look at that story at some point. Because Jesus breaks these stereotypical uh, boundaries and he meets this woman where she's at and he loves her. It's awesome. There's stories of Jesus saying, hey, let the little children come to me. Jesus wasn't above um, being seen with children who, back in, the, back in their day, they were, children were, were nothing in society. They were the lowest of the low. And yet, his disciples would have seen Jesus modeling all of these things. And just imagine all the countless other times that Jesus served them and served others that we just don't have recorded for us. So when Jesus looks at his disciples on the night before he he dies, he's able to say, hey, I command you, I want you to love each other the way I have loved you. And they would have had tons of examples to think through. Now, Jesus, he says in verse 13, and if you could put it back up on the screen, he says this, he says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus, the very next day, would literally take that to heart. He would literally die for his disciples and for all of us. And so Jesus, when he looks at his disciples and says, Hey, I command you, I want you to love each other the way I've loved you. What is he getting at? What is he getting at when it comes to having relationships with other people? He's getting at the reality that, hey, when you have a relationship with someone, when you love them the way I have loved you, you make that relationship more about that person than about you. 
You enter into that relationship and you say, hey, I'm going to serve you. I'm not looking for you to serve me back. It's all about humbling ourselves and saying, hey, your needs are more important than my needs right now. I'm going to love you the way that Jesus has loved me through sacrifice, through serving, through humility. Imagine what all of our relationships would look like if we based them all off of those things. If every relationship we entered into was, hey, I'm going to love you the way Jesus has loved me. And we went into the relationship viewing the other person saying, hey, I'm going to hold you up. I'm not looking for you to hold me up. How different would things be? Now, is that the way our world views relationships? Is this the way that our society views relationships? I don't think so. Our society, when I was thinking about this, two words came to mind. Um, Our society, when they look at friendships and relationships, often say, often view them through ultimatums and contracts. They often view friendships as this thing of, hey, if you do your end of the bargain, I'll stick around and do my end of the bargain. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Hey, I'll serve you, but you first gotta, you gotta give me something in return. And sometimes we don't uh, verbally say these things, but oftentimes just by the way we act, by the way we can manipulate situations, by the way we can talk about other people behind their back, we're trying to make relationships about contracts and ultimatums. We're trying to get more out of them than to give more out of them. We're basically seeing our relationships as investments, saying, hey, can I invest this much and get this much in return? If I give this person this much, can I then get them to give me this much in return? And we don't always do this, but I think this is a common thing in our society. Oftentimes in in marriages, oftentimes in friendships, it can go without saying there's this just idea of, hey, I'll stick around if you stick around and do your end of the bargain. And that's not what Jesus tells his disciples to do, is it? says, no, love each other as I have loved you. And so I think if we want an exceptional squad, we have to do the work to become an exceptional squad member. I think that's where it starts. If we are viewing the relationships in our life and we're saying, hey, I want a deep relationship with other people. I want to have a squad. It first starts with looking at how can I be an exceptional squad member, not at how can I gather exceptional squad members around me. It first starts with how can I love others the way Jesus has loved me, not how can I get these people to come serve me and to invest in me. Now, being a part of a squad, there is that give and take. It's a good thing to have a squad where people have your back when, when life falls apart and to allow other people to serve us. I mean, that, that's a good thing. I'm not saying, hey, don't have this stoic attitude where you're never allowing anyone else to bless you. That, that's not what I'm saying. But there is a difference, I think. I think we could all agree. There's a difference between saying, hey, I need my squad in this moment and I need my squad to be all about me all the time. You know, there's a difference because we definitely need our squad to be there for us. That's the part of the points of having the squad is that they're there for us in those hard times. But it's very different when we go into it thinking, how can I be an exceptional squad member first and foremost. And I want to look at an example of this in scripture because there was an exceptional squad that we see in the book of First and Second Samuel. And it's the relationship of Jonathan and David. 
And maybe you've heard the story before. It's uh, the story of David is a pretty well-known story of David and Goliath. Um, And David, he was a shepherd boy, and then he comes and he slays Goliath, the Philistine giant. And then he goes from a shepherd boy, a nobody, to a war hero. And where we're going to look at, it's in 1 Samuel 18. It's right after um, David has just slayed Goliath. And we're going to see in this story, um, David, we're going to see Saul, and we're going to see Jonathan. And this is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 18. It says, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From the day that, from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. So let's take this in. David David has just slayed Goliath. He is now a war hero. He's become famous. And if you know the story before this, David was anointed to become the next king. All right, Saul is currently the king, but he has done things that has displeased God. And God has said, you know what? I'm going to raise up someone else. And David is God's choice. And here we have David. He has just slayed the giant uh, Goliath. He's become this war hero. He's getting all this attention from Saul. And here we have Jonathan, the prince, who steps into the picture, and he sees David. Now, what would we expect this relationship of Jonathan to David to be like? We have Jonathan, who is the the prince, who should be king someday. And then we have David, who God has anointed to be king. And at this point... At this point in the story, I don't know if Jonathan would have known that about David or whatnot. But as we follow the story, that clearly becomes known to Jonathan. It's clear that he knows that. And so, at least as the story goes on, wouldn't we think that David and Jonathan would kind of have some competition? I mean, Jonathan is supposed to be king. He's a prince. Wouldn't he look at David with jealousy and contempt? I don't know what exactly why Jonathan looks at David, but he sees something in David and he sees something in him to the point where he says, hey, I want you in my squad because it says that he loved him as himself. We see that in verse one. And it says then he, verse three, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. That word covenant is a really powerful and strong word. It doesn't say that Jonathan made a contract with David. It says he made a covenant with him. And these two things, a contract and a covenant, are things that can sometimes be interchanged a little bit. There's similarities there, but there's some some very large differences between them. Because a a contract is something we get in and out of all the time. I mean, I have my, my phone contract where I'm paying my phone company to give me service, and I'm paying for the phone and whatnot. But at some point, I will probably get out of that contract, and I'll go to what I think is a better phone company and a better phone, and I'll get into a new contract. And there won't be any hard feelings between me and them, hopefully. I mean, it's, it's a contract. And uh, if I break the contract or if they break the contract, there are penalties that can get paid. But then after the penalties are paid, it's like, all right, we, we, we did what we said we would do. If we broke the contract, all right, we can now go on our way, and that's it. Whereas with a covenant, a covenant is something much deeper. 
It's something, um, there's much more at stake because a covenant is something that we're, we enter into where it's say, hey, I'm going to be here and serve you and, and keep my end of the bargain even if you don't keep your end of the bargain. If Sprint doesn't keep their end of the bargain with me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break that contract and I'm going to go to someone else. And that, that's okay. That's part of the contract agreement. But with a covenant, it's this thing where, hey, I am committing myself to be here regardless of if you keep your end of the bargain or not. And that's a lot harder thing to swallow, I think. That's a lot harder thing to, to process. And it's, it's hard when we, we process the reality of living in a sinful fallen world where, where covenants do get broken and it's painful and it's hard and there's, there's grace and mercy that can be found in all of those things, which is, which is so good. But when we enter into a covenant, it is something that, that is much deeper than just a simple contract. And we see that Jonathan, he enters into this covenant with David and he does something that would be really odd for us if we want, can put up the verses again. It's found in verse 4. It says, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, I would not advise you do this today. All right? If you're making a friendship with somebody, do not start taking off your clothes and handing it to them. That would be very socially awkward and odd, you would not have a good squad member there. They would probably run away from you. But back then, I want us to understand the significance of what Jonathan did. As the prince, he would have had royal garments. David, as a shepherd boy, would have just had simple clothing. And so Jonathan, by taking off his royal garments, is saying to David, hey, our positions don't matter. The fact that I'm royalty and you're not, that doesn't matter to me. I'm making a covenant with you. It's not about rank here. I'm making this relationship more about you and less about me. And I'm showing it to you by taking off my royal garments. By handing David his, his bow and his sword, we see Jonathan surrendering, surrendering his, his power over to David. You know, think about back then, uh, someone who has a sword, someone in royalty... They don't want to surrender their sword to someone. They want to stick their sword into to someone's belly. They don't want to hand it over to somebody. And that's what Jonathan does. It's an incredibly powerful picture of Jonathan saying, hey, I have covenanted with you. I want you to prosper, even if I don't. I want you to be lifted up and supported. I'm going to think about you first rather than thinking about myself. And he shows him that through these tangible acts of giving him his robe and his sword. And this covenant between Jonathan and David, we see play out through the rest of their, their story. We see Jonathan, he's there for David um, when Saul begins to get jealous over David. And Jonathan at one point actually risks his own life to save David from his father. Because Saul gets so angry at Jonathan for being friends with David that he throws a spear at Jonathan. He wants to kill his own son because he's friends with David. And Jonathan, rather than saving his own neck, says, hey, I'm going to put myself at risk to save my friend. 
We see another point. We see the, the raw, real covenant relationship that Jonathan and David had um, when they, they, they meet up and they're, they're, they're crying with each other. They're, they're vulnerable with each other over the pain that Saul is causing them. We see a real vulnerable moment with them. And then if you know the story, Jonathan eventually, he dies in a battle. And David, he just laments over the loss of his son. And then in 2 Samuel 9, all right, so the story has played out. Jonathan and Saul have died, and David has finally become king. And when a king, back, when someone comes to power back then, one of the things that they would normally do is wipe out the, the, past, reign, the past king and his whole dynasty. Like they're just going to get rid of all the family so that no one can uprise from that past uh, ruling family or whatnot. And in 2 Samuel 9, we see that David, he tells his servants, hey, I want to find someone who is a descendant of Saul. And as the reader, thinking about that ancient context, it would make total sense that, wow, he's going to wipe out the line of Saul because that's what kings would do. But instead of wiping them out, David, he talks about how I want to find a descendant of Saul because I want to show kindness to Jonathan and to his family. And so his servant goes out and he finds um, one of Jonathan's sons. His name is Mephibosheth. All right. Please do not name your son Mephibosheth. It was a hard name. I'm having trouble saying it. Mephibosheth. And instead of blotting out Saul's line, he brings Mephibosheth in and Mephibosheth comes in and he's like cowering. He calls himself a dog because he figures this is my last day. And what David does is he says, hey, I'm going to restore to you, Mephibosheth, your family's lands. And hey, Mephibosheth, come eat with me at my royal table for the rest of your life. And so even after Jonathan dies years later, David remembers his squad member and he puts his money where his mouth is. And he says, hey, I'm going to restore to you your lands and you're going to eat at my own table. It's not just enough to give Mephibosheth his own life, which would have been the politically wrong thing to do back then. He should have wiped him out. It, should, it was the financially wrong thing to give up lands and to give it back to Mephibosheth. But David didn't care about what the political correct thing was or the financially better thing was. He cared more about his squad member and about maintaining that covenant. And he cared so much that he, he gave back to Mephibosheth. He gave back to Jonathan's family. And so both David and Jonathan, ultimately, they make their relationships more about the other person rather than about what they can get from the other person. These are the types of people that I think we would all want in our squad. How amazing would it be to have a guy like Jonathan or David who would make a covenant with us and would say, hey, I'm going to put you above myself and I'm going to serve you and be there for you. And so I just have a question for us. Are you the type of person someone else would want in their squad? Just think about that. Are you the type of person someone else would want in their squad? Just think about that. Are you the kind of person in the things that you say and do, the way you live your life, that someone would say, hey, I want that person? Hey, I want you to be in my squad because I see something in you where you make life more about serving God and loving others more than about, hey, what can I do to get as much as I possibly can? And I would say as Jesus followers, 
as Jesus followers, we should desire to be that, those kinds of people. People that make life more about others rather than about ourselves. Because that's exactly what our Savior has done. He made it more about us rather than about himself. And he served us and humbled, humbly came and loved us. And so I'd encourage you this week, as we start to wrap up, I'd encourage you this week to really take some time to process this whole squad series. There's so much more we could have talked about, but really take some time because we all, I think, want good relationships. But we have to do the work to process what ordinary routines might I have to change in order to get there. Maybe we have to think about the way we use our words to other people. Maybe we need to think about, hey, am I listening to other people and not always just seeking to be heard? Maybe we need to think about, hey, maybe I need to put more time or resources and energy into this relationship. And I need to think about, hey, how can I boost them up, even if it costs me a little bit? It's hard, I think, especially in our society, to orient our life around serving others because we so quickly want to orient it around our sinful selves. And so the last thing I want to, I just want to share with you guys is this. I think we're all going to struggle to be good squad members because of our sinful fallen nature. But I think we're, we're all really going to struggle being good squad members if we don't know where, I, where our identity lies. Because the reality is the more secure our identity in Jesus, the more we can selflessly serve our squad. See, when we walk into a room and if we're dealing with all of our insecurities about what our identity is and who we are and what defines us and what we should do, it's so easy to look at relationships and try to orient them around, fix me, serve me, make my life better. But if our identity is secure, then we can say, hey, I have a place of security I can stand on. I'm going to give back to you and you and you. Think about uh, someone climbing a cliff. If someone is climbing a cliff and someone reaches over to help them, if the person reaching over doesn't have good uh, sound footing, what's going to happen? That person is going to reach up and take their hand and they're going to pull them over the cliff. But if the person has a good, secure footing, they're stationary, they know where they stand, they're going to be able to help the other person up and over. And I'd say the same thing is true in all of our relationships. When our identity is secure in Jesus, we have a better chance to say, hey, I'm going to make life about you and not about me. And so this week, I'd encourage you to, to think about those things. Where does your identity lie? And if you're not a Jesus follower here, whether you're listening online or in person, thank you so much for tuning in with us. And I'd encourage you to think about what could it look like for you to take that step to make Jesus that secure identity in your life? Because as sinful, fallen human beings, we're so quick to live out of our insecurities and to make life more about us rather than about others. And I think it's so important if our security is found in Jesus, we then can be exceptional squad members. And as we do that, I think we will form exceptional squads in our lives, in our church, and in our community. So what type of person are you? Are the type of person that someone would want in their squad, or are you not? If so, how can you keep living that out? And if not, how can you take steps this week to become that kind of person 
to become ultimately more like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning, for the chance that we have to worship you, to talk about this idea of deep relationships. Lord, we need your help in order to have these deep relationships. We need security in you. And I pray that this week, may we all take steps to be reminded of the identity we have in you. We are new creations in you. So thank you for that. And this week, may we orient our life to look at others and say, hey, how can I serve you rather than just to be served by you? Thank you, Lord, for modeling these things for us, for coming to earth, for dying for us, and and for serving us. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for loving us first. Amen.